0: Hey, this is Lee. I really hope you've been enjoying the Business of Marketing podcast. It's from marketers and for marketers, and my intention is to bring you value, experiences, and insights that you can use. Also, if your company would like to have their own podcast, I would love to help. The team at Content Monster specializes in B2B podcasts, so if we can help, contact me at contentmonster.com. That's contentmonster, M-O-N-S-T-A, dot com. Enjoy the podcast. Listening
1: to the Business of Marketing Podcast, where we have conversations with some of the most influential and thought provoking minds in marketing, sales, and business. And here's your host, A. Lee Judge.
0: Welcome again to the Business of Marketing. I'm A. Lee Judge. Although business-to-consumer marketing can be exciting, business-to-business or B2B is where it gets fun for me. Maybe because of the challenge, maybe because of the complexity, or maybe just because I really understand the B2B dynamic. The best part is getting to geek out and talk B2B marketing with experts in the industry, and today is one of those days. Today's guest has over 30 years of business management and marketing experience in helping B2B companies use digital marketing strategy and compelling content to turn prospects into buyers. She's a strategist, storyteller, speaker, blogger, and author who is obsessed with helping companies become relevant. So let's welcome to the conversation and welcome to the podcast, Ardith Albee. Hi, Ardith. Hi, how are you? So great to be
1: here.
0: Thank you for joining me today. Um, and before we dive in, can you give our listeners a bit more, a brief background so they know that they are definitely hearing from an expert?
1: Uh, oh, well, that's a high bar. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you are, you are. Don't be modest. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yes, I've been doing this for a long time and it's just kind of funny the way I got into it. I was um, running a startup software company and think first ever iteration of marketing automation uh, or uh a website platform designed for marketers to run. Back in the year 2000, marketers didn't do that, right? They thought, okay, no, <laughs> too much for us. We're not doing it. But anyways, back in 2000, if you think about the corporate website, it was basically people had taken their brochures and put them online. Yeah. And then they couldn't figure out why their websites weren't working. Well, as someone with a degree in English who's done a, who had done at that time a ton of fiction writing and that kind of thing, I started looking at their websites thinking, "Well, oh my God, who would want to read this? So I started helping them redo their websites. And I start I used a lot of um, what I had been taught about character building from best-selling authors and retreats I went to to start interviewing their customers and building what became personas and um, helping them really engage. And about seven years later in 2007, I had enough people asking me to do projects and work that I jumped and became a consultant. So that's how it all came about. Uh, but it was really just trying to help them do something that was meaningful instead of just, you know, all about them all the time, <laughs> Definitely <laughs> well, changed, you know, all the way yet, all these years later. But.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, you definitely ha- have your accolades in, in B2B marketing, especially with complex uh, marketing challenges. Um, you know, in my short 25 years of B2B marketing today, I'm still seeing, I'm seeing one of the most common and widely used practices that you mentioned. Um, begin to crack, and that's the practice of persona targeting. Can you give me your view of how B2B organizations should think about personas today and how it might differ from how it was done just five years ago?
1: Yeah, well, I get so frustrated because all I see posted is get rid of the personas. Personas don't work. Personas are garbage. And well, yeah, the way companies build them, they are garbage. You cannot sit around a table eating pizza with your team and decide what your customer cares about. It just doesn't work that way. And then slap a picture on it, call it Mary Marketing Person or whatever, and you have a persona. And so it was really interesting. The um, A lot of my clients, the first time I go into work with them is to build personas for them. And most of them will say, we already have personas. I say, great, send them to me. Only one time, and I think I've done this for almost 200 companies now, only one time has there been a set of personas that I said, we can work with these. The rest of them were garbage. And so I understand why personas get a bad rap. And so I've been trying to figure out what else can I call it? But it's really about uh, a format, if you will, a structure, a framework for what do you do with all your customer insights? How do you make them usable? How do you apply them in certain instances, in certain contexts? You know, how do you actually use them? And one of the biggest problems we have, somebody posted about it on LinkedIn the other day about who has personas and their team won't use them. How do you get your team to use them? You know, which is the biggest problem. Marketers check the box and they file them away and they go, okay, we did that. What's next? And the problem is if you don't use those insights, then you're still talking about you and your product because that's what you know. And you're not putting that buyer front and center, right? It's not about them. And so my advice to the woman who posted on LinkedIn was um, incorporate personas into your creative briefs. And then make it part of the review process, right? What's, what, who's the audience for this piece of content? Which persona? Why are they going to care about this piece of content, right? What is it in their persona that makes them care about this thing? What's the takeaway you want them to get? And then make sure that that's part of the review process, that those things are checked off when you're evaluating the content to say, yes, this is good enough to publish. But if you don't use them, then what's the point? You know, but it's, um, it was, it's interesting to me that people are not talking about personas anymore. They're talking about, like Forrester talks about customer insights and in their 2022 predictions, one of their, you know, is personalization becomes a bigger and bigger thing. They said that B2B companies were more likely to fail than succeed this year just based on a lack of customer insight because their personalization wouldn't be authentic, relevant, whatever fitting to context.
0: You know, it's interesting you mentioned, mentioned Forrester. So I was recently at the uh, Forrester B2B Summit. And I decided to, for our customers, for, for my agency's customers, to reverse engineer our personas. To say, let's just look at our customers. Let's see who they are. And let's see if we can reverse engineer a persona. So I want to get your, your, your take on this because a strange thing happened. We looked through all the champions at our customer accounts and we noticed they had several very similar traits. These traits were not just psych- psychographic. They were also kind of demographic. And some of those similar traits, we wouldn't even want to speak of because it just wouldn't sound right. But yet, the trend was there. Um, so currently, we just, we just kind of passed it off as correlation and not causation. But what would you say to a company that said, you know, our successful, successful customers have these traits. Do we utilize it or do we ignore it?
1: Well, it depends on well what they are. Without knowing what they are, here's the tricky part. Is it going to be creepy if you utilize them? or is It was it, creepy. Can you do it? Yeah. Can you do it in a way where it's not? And one of the ways around that, the reason I love so much to talk to my clients' customers is because I want to know what words they use, what phrases. How do they say something that you would say differently, right? Because you're not them. Yeah. So how mm-hmm. do they refer to it? If you can start using their words you know, and and those types of things. But one of the other things that I find you get from reverse engineering personas is specificity, right? How many people say grow revenues or increase productivity or whatever? What does that mean? Does that Uh mean I need to get my, you know, products in market three months faster than I'm doing today in order to, you know, hit the beginning of the cycle for selling this new thing or whatever it is, you know, how can you get specific, so when you think about what does it really mean to that persona, and the problem is, is that people want to write content that talks to everybody. Well, if you do yeah. that, you're talking to nobody because you're so high level. It doesn't mean anything. There's no context there. It's just a bunch of blah, blah, blah. you know. And so I think the issue is really figuring out how do you use those insights. But when I go through the recordings of um, or my notes from customer calls or whatever, trying to figure out which are the important things that you pull out. And what I'm looking for across all the interviews, sometimes I'll do 25 interviews for one persona. What are the commonalities, right? Because as marketers, unless we're doing a one-to-one ABM, you know, big deal program, we're looking at how can we engage the widest swath of this target audience, right? How can we Mm -hmm. be relevant to them? And so you're not looking for the one-off differences, Like everybody drives a Volvo. This guy drives a Corvette. So let's talk about the Corvette. No, 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 no. Talk about the Volvo, you know. But Mm. um, so you're really looking for those commonalities across. And I'll talk to people until I I start hearing the same stuff again and again and again. And then I go, okay, we've got this. We we understand. And the other big difference is size of company. You know, if it's Mm. a small company, people wear more hats, their view is different then if it's a larger company and the persona is more specialized, right? Because their mm. point of view is narrow, where in some somebody wearing a lot of hats, their point of view is wider and their reference points are going to be different.
0: And that is one of the usable insights we found, which was how many people are typically working with or around our champion? In other words, are they a team of one, a team of 20, you know, we saw some trends as terms of what does their staff look like. Um, and as you mentioned, too, we got the chance to understand their language, like what do they call things. Um, we even saw our trend of them saying, "We need this thing, but what do you call it? We were calling it this, you know, or how do you what what do you guys call this thing? So th- they were basically saying to us, the professionals, what is the professional term for this thing that we call that thing? And so, not only did we respond with creating content using those words and, and especially the emails to them, and also into, you know, I guess widening the, the persona of wh- how they speak, we also began creating content to answer what is this thing called? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. for example, we we produce video podcasts. We produce podcasts first. We found out that our customers didn't know an audio podcast from a video podcast many times. And so they would say, we want to do a podcast, but we also want to do video. What do you call that? And we realized the definition wasn't even out there. You know, is it videocast, vodcast, podcast with video? What was it? So we learned that, you know, our, many of our customers, in fact, our ideal customer, will want to get this service, but they don't even know what word to use. And so we began creating educational content on, on what it was and maybe help them Earned the vocabulary of what to use.
1: Well, you know it's it's funny because as a speaker, I speak on a lot of podcasts. One of my first questions mm-hmm. is always, "Is this going to be on video?" So I know that I have to brush my hair and put on a clean shirt, you know, or whatever, so that you know. And almost all of them have, are are video as well as audio, you know. But it's just funny. And one day somebody and it happened because one day somebody didn't tell me, and so mm-hmm. I thought I was doing audio, you know, and I said they were like, no, <laughs> this is video. It's <laughs> like, can we reschedule, please? But, you know, so it's, it becomes a, and a key point, you know, but people don't know. And it changed so fast. You know, all of a sudden, you know, what was a podcast is no longer just a podcast. It's now uh, it's almost like a, a little mini panel webinar or conversational webinar or, or you know, versus a podcast. Yeah.
0: So and you mentioned earlier about being more centric yeah. to their vocabulary and to their world, because we decided we can call it podcast all we want to. It doesn't matter what we call it. It matters what our customer calls it. And we, you know, at first we thought, well, we could be with the purists and call it what the purists call it, but it doesn't even matter. Only matters what our customers call it. And if they want us to create content for them and they call it a, a webcast, we'll do that too. As long as we <laughs> know what they want and we'll call it whatever they call it.
1: Yeah. Well, going back to, to what you did with the, the talking to them about what they call things. One of the things I also do when I'm interviewing customers for personas is test out messaging. You know, like the company will be dead set on. We think this phrase is just killer. You know, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I'll throw in something like, what do you think about when I say blah, blah, blah? they will be, oh, God, that's terrible. Please don't say that. You know, <laughs> or or they'll be actually I think about it more like this thing over here. And then sometimes they'll be, yeah, that's cool. I could buy into that, you know, but it's, it's a great way just to test, you know, some of your value prop messaging or some of the phrasing you're going to put on your website or, you know, those kinds of things just to get that knee-jerk reaction because I'll throw it out there when it's not really in the line of conversation, just as an aside to see what they think. And um, so it's kind of fun, actually. So I've had and that's really why companies
0: need consultants.
1: Yeah, <laughs> because you
0: asked that question.
1: Yeah, it's yeah, uh, it's what better way to test, you know? Instead of after the fact when you've got it on your website and everybody's bouncing and leaving because they're like, "Oh God," you know?
0: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's uh, glad you asked them that question because that's something that, especially with B2B, we get caught in our own terminology so much. That we market outbound with our words, they're not even our customers' words.
1: I know, especially having, with products. Yeah, I'm having a <laughs> continuous conversation about this kind of thing with a VP that I'm doing a, a extended project for. And every time we get ready to release an email or content or whatever, she's saying, "Well, I wouldn't read that, so we're not sending that. You have to fix it. You have to change it." And I'm like, "But you're not our target market. You are not mm. in any way related to our target market." think about that. No, I still wouldn't read it, change it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to. <laughs> so, you know, but, um,
0: they need you. They need a consultant so it, for sure.
1: <laughs> but it's, you know, I've sat in so many of these meetings where somebody says, well, we're not doing this program because I wouldn't engage with that. Well, you're not the buyer. You're not the audience, you know? And so people need to learn how to get out of their own way, quite frankly. Absolutely. it's not about what we think. It's about what is going to resonate with our audience. And it, it takes the willingness to let go of that, even if it's something you yourself wouldn't like. Heck, I've written a lot of things that I would never read, but I'm not the <laughs> audience. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I want to ask you some things about some more like timely marketing topics. Um, yesterday, I was asked what I thought about the budgets that companies would be using For marketing going into what looks like might be a recession. And Artif, I understand that you've been a consultant since about 2007 when we were heading into a recession. So, did you see companies pull back on marketing then, or did they dig deeper in with their marketing
1: efforts? Actually, starting my consulting business in 2007 was one of the best choices I could have ever made because companies knew they were in trouble. And if they didn't fix it, they were going because nobody knew how long the recession or whatever we were going into in 2008 was going to last. So I started my consultancy in the middle of 2007. By the middle of 2008, I had seven people on staff. In that fast a period of time, because people really doubled down on, and I work with enterprise companies, so it wasn't necessarily that you know their budget was down to the nubs. They were cutting a lot of programs, but they realized that if they didn't get it right, they were going to lose their position, their competitive Mm. position in the market and they couldn't afford to do that. And so it was, um, it it was an interesting time to start. And so I think about where we are now and I'm hoping, I'm already seeing, watching the layoffs is a bit scary and Mm. you know, all that kind of thing. And I'm already seeing it happen and I'm thinking, okay, guys, don't throw it all away, you know, figure out what to double down on and, Quite frankly, getting to know your uh, customers and your audience is one of the best things you can do, especially because as this continues, the buyer you knew yesterday is not going to be the same buyer that you're selling to tomorrow as this moves forward because the economy, the supply chain disruption, everything we're going through right now, or in Ukraine, whatever, all the consequences of those things are are affecting our buyers. So even our, six months ago, your buyer is not the same today as they were six months ago. So we have to continuously update and see. The other problem with personas is you do it once and you think, okay, I've got that. Oh no, they keep changing. You know, and so you have to continuously update or add to it. You know, I try to get my clients to do at least one customer interview a month and add insights. You know, to their personas if anything's changed and just kind of keep their finger on it. And if they start hearing a lot of change, then let's add in a few more customer interviews and see where people are going, you know? Um, but it's really important.
0: A key phrase you just said there was market position. And I think that's definitely an important thing to keep in mind right now going into, if this is what we're going into a recession, because companies who want to keep their market position now, isn't the time to let off the gas in their marketing.
1: No, it's not. Um, But it is the time to get as highly relevant as possible so that you keep that audience. You know, what happens when things change like this is people start looking for new insights somewhere. Somebody's got to have the secret, the easy button, the whatever it is. And if you do not keep evolving the way you're talking about things in relation to what's going on today, they'll go somewhere else and start looking, and then you've lost your engagement. Right. And so you want them to keep, you want to build that relationship and their reliance on you for insights and information that affect their job, the way they're looking at the industry and trends and all the rest of it. They may not be able to buy today, but if you lose that position with them, you know, not just in the market, but with them, it's hard to get it back.
0: So So now's uh, the time to stay top of mind all the way through this so that when they decide to spend, you're the one they spend with.
1: Well, right. And so what a lot of companies do is they start panicking and they start really trying to make their numbers, you know, in sales. And so Mm -hmm. they really start leaning heavy on product and all the rest of it. And people feel pressured. And yet they're Mm -hmm. under so much stress at work, too. Buying is not their only job. We seem to forget that. You know, they have a lot of other things they have to do. and so. We need to be helping them, helping them think, helping them, you know, strategize what's next, how to to maybe even helping them fix something without selling them anything so that when they need to buy something, they come back to you. We need to look at it a little differently, like how do we really build and cement those relationships during this difficult time, right? So that we come out the other side, okay, you know, or better than okay, actually, and when you go back and you look at some studies, I think McKenzie's done some, and so it's Bain and a couple others. But when you double down on customers' relevance during this time, this kind of a period, a recession or right. you know a disruption, whatever, you end up increasing your productivity and coming out better in the long run for growth and revenue than you do if you just try to cut everything and batten down the hatches and hang on. You know, that's not it because you lose all your momentum, you know. And one of the things people don't think about with marketing, there was a discussion about this the other day, is that marketing programs take time to build momentum. One of the things I'm always interested in is when um, a client will say to me, well, we need to launch this this program. We need it to return results in, you know, 60 days, 90 at the outside. It's say, great. How long is your sales cycle? Oh, six to nine months. And you want results in, in 60 to 90 days? Really? Oh, that's real, you you know? But (laughs) it takes a while to build that momentum. And once you have it, then it'll start cycling through, right? And so you can Mm -hmm. keep producing results. But if you don't stick with the program long enough to build the momentum based on what bicycle time really is and all of that, give it time to perform, then you're just wasting money. You're cutting off your nose to spite your face because you're saying, well, that didn't work. Well, why? Because it didn't return a result in a third of the time that it should have you know, (laughs) taken to get it. Mm -hmm. So, but it's, it's interesting to me where we look at what we need, which is our numbers at the end of the month or the quarter, rather than what the reality is, what it takes us to get there. And then the other number that's bandied around all the time now is less than 5% of your addressable market is in market at any one time. Right. And so, and you're not the only one going after those 5%, right? So, um mm. it, it's just interesting. If we don't take a long-term view, then we're giving up advantage.
0: Well, let's talk about that long-term view, especially when we talk about content marketing. Um, I believe the first time I learned about you was because either we were speaking at the same content marketing event or we're both on a list of marketers to follow. And I know you work with B2B organizations on their strategy. Um, and when it comes time to talk about content, What is the door opener for convincing the traditional C-suite that the long game of content marketing is even worth it?
1: Um, Excuse me. Um, That's a tricky question. And what I find is it's a blend. So we can have long-term programs, but we also need to have some short-term stuff. We also need to do Mm -hmm. sales enablement stuff, right? Get them messaging and content that they can use in their conversations we need to have long-term plays and we need to understand when you can explain to the C-suite where people are in the pipe, right? And how long it takes to get them through the pipe. And then you show them how you can use content to motivate movement in that pipe and shorten that time frame, is when you can start getting buy-in. But if I find that you can't just say, well, all we're doing is this long-term play, live with that. You can't because you can't, exist with sales that way and you know the executive business objectives that you need to align to and all of that so you need a mix of some Mm short-term stuff and that's a lot of times where events come into play because they can see some results what you have to think about what movement for them and measurement for them will help them feel like they're on their way to getting that business objective you know and Yet, if they sacrifice long-term and do everything as a short-term campaign play, well, they'll tell you what happens. You've got a buyer, they're interested, they're engaging, and your campaign ends because that's it. And we did it for our month. It's over. Well, your person isn't, your buyer isn't done. So what are they going to do? Just say, oh, a new campaign. Yeah, let me change my train of thought here. You (laughs) know, the dumbest (laughs) thing I've ever seen is people that come up with these themes like, Quarter one is this theme. Quarter two is that theme. And they have a year-long buy price process. And, you know, so all of a sudden at the end of the quarter, they shut it off and they start a new theme. People are like, huh, what? Wait, I was interested in this other thing. Now what the heck am I supposed to do? So they have to go find somebody else. You have now sent them away. Why do you do that? You know, why does anybody do that? That's because they think
0: that it's their journey and not the customer's journey.
1: Yeah, so I I wrote this rant um, not too long ago about, how we messed up customer centricity. We so got it wrong. We decided that customer centricity was a great thing because we could use it to force our customers down the funnel or whatever. It mm. was all about what we wanted. Even though we put our customers at the center, it was like figuring out how to force them to do what we wanted rather than creating buyer driven programs, which allow the buyer to drive and decide and move forward to get all their jobs done on their way to buy, you know? Um, but we really screwed up customer-centricity.
0: <laughs> well, you talk about, you know, that, that dance with sales and marketing. Um, I had an interesting thing happen, and I, I posted about it today on LinkedIn, where we had one of our prospective customers actually thank us for an email that we sent. And while this email was, it was an automated part of our sales process, and it, even though it was, it was not a sales email it just provided some educational information to this prospect that we know is researching for a service that we provide. Um, I noticed on your website you have a bullet point uh, that beautifully expresses exactly what we experienced, and your your bullet point was design lead nurturing programs that motivate progression from curiosity to customer. So, you know, if, if you're trying to explain this concept, not to marketing but to a sales team, how would you present that?
1: Well, it's interesting, you know, um, during the high point of COVID, I uh, agreed to become interim VP of marketing for one of my clients. Um, And so they were sold sales enablement software. And so your question line's right up to that. And so small sales team, probably about eight of them at the time. And what they really needed help with was, Content and conversations and knowing how to um, extend the engagement that we created in marketing. So when they got on the phone with the buyer, they weren't starting from, so tell me about you, you know, um, all of that, they, they could pick it up from where they could see the interactions that had taken them, what content they'd seen, all of that present, you know, since you've already know all of these things here's this, our new paper on X that will help you think about applying whatever to whatever, you know, and, and, but having them act, actually um, not send just following up emails and, you know, that ridiculousness. And so trying to have them provide value with every single interaction. And what was interesting was um, probably at least two or three of the sales team were like, Shh, you know, I need to marketing we know what we're doing. We don't have any, any use for you. And some of the other ones were like, great, help us. What should we do? Well, the other ones started seeing stuff happen. Right. And they started getting in these conversations and their prospects started downloading their content and sharing it with other people on the buying committee and that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, the 80 to ones were coming back and going, okay, wait, what are you guys doing? You know? And so It's it helps especially with sales if you can get um, a champion that will try out some of this stuff and then be able to talk about it show and see it works. I got three calls this week because I did this, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the other secret I think to aligning sales and marketing is when I do a persona project, who are some of the first people I talk to? Sales team. I go interview a handful of the sales team from executive to actual feed on the street sellers and get their opinions and their thoughts and their insights. Because what I really want to know is when I go out and talk to their customers, is the picture I get from the customer going to line up to the way the company goes to market? Right? What are we missing? And in every instance there's stuff that doesn't line up. I mean it just can't. Sales are talking one to one, marketing are talking one to many, and then it's narrowing down and somehow it's you know not coming together. Or the executive team, and I talked to them too, is telling sales what they think because they're having all their one-to-one executive relationships. Doesn't look anything like that down on the street level view where they're actually solving the problem, right? But they'll oh. tell sales, this is what they care about. Well, no, maybe that's what the you know <laughs> VIP level talks about, but that's not what the people solving the problem talk about. And so, you know, trying to get everybody level set on this. But when you involve sales and you show them that you're applying stuff for them, and I make a version of the persona for the sales team. It does, It's not nearly as in-depth as the one we use for marketing because we're writing all this content and stuff. But key questions they have, key phrases, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's just a one, I make it a one sheet because salespeople aren't going to use more than that. But I make a version of a persona for the sales team. They like that it's made for them, but they also like being involved and feeling that their input is valued in that process. And that more than anything else goes a long way to getting them on the same page and getting them excited about what can marketing do for us, you know, rather than marketing's gonna make us do this. And what can they help us do? You know, and so it changes that perspective a bit.
0: Well, down down to the content level, um, let me ask you this, you know. My company produces B2B content for businesses, but we also help them learn how to create more human content themselves. Can you speak to some of the ways that even B2B companies can become more human and relatable to their customer in order to pull interest in rather than keep pushing out products and services?
1: Well, yeah, write like you talk. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's um, for some reason, and I'm not quite sure how this happened, but when we write in... Um, business, we tend to think that we have to be, you know, academic, professorial, you know, we're the thought leader, we're going to tell you how it is, you know, and it gets so stiff. And, um, and when we write that way, we tend to go into passive tense. Nobody wants to read that. It's like slogging through mud. And so one of the things I, I try to help people do is say, just first draft, write it like you're talking it. You know, and if you don't do it that way, read it out loud. Can you actually read it out loud without cringing or laughing or crying or you know, any of that? And so, um, but it's a great test. But it's really being more conversational. It's get all of this references to your company and your product and I out of there. Talk about you and you want and you're challenged by and, you know, whatever to make it um, relatable. One of the things that I think people miss a lot is when they're trying to write more personalized content, they tend to talk down to the person on are mm. receiving it. I can't tell you how mm. many emails I get in my inbox that talk to, and I'm, you know, my title, formal title is CEO of my company. And I can't tell you how many emails I get that are insulting you know, and I'm like, <laughs> you obviously, first of all, don't know who I am. Second of all, that you would write this to a CEO, whether, you know, mm-hmm. who you don't know and whatever, but they, they tend to say, you know, companies like you are failing at X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, that's what <laughs> oh, I do I for a living, emails. you idiot. You know, <laughs> so, but it's, it's like, you know, the, you've got to think about it. I often, when I'm working on a project with clients, I will make them send nurture emails to themselves. Send it into your inbox. You get it. You read it. Put yourself in your customer's shoes. Are you going to delete that thing or are you going to click on the link? You know, and experience it. Because let me tell you something. It looks a lot different in a Word document than it does when it's actually in an email format or on the web page or whatever. And so, you know, you need to think about how does it land? You know, so it's not just the word choice itself, but the phrasing and, you know, what sounds good in your head, which is why I make people read out loud, sounds totally different when, you know, it's put in front of somebody and they read it and they think, who in the hell do you think you are? You know, and you don't want to have that kind of response. You know, that's not the intent. But it's lazy content, I call it, because we're not paying attention to how it lands. And that is one of the biggest parts of it. I just edited a paper this morning for um, a company I'm doing strategy for. And they just asked me, could you look at this? Our agency gave it to us and wrote it for us. And I went through it and it was like it was a paper and it had five sections that you could have just pulled out and had them stand alone. They were, they were not related to each other. There was no flow. There was no. I was like, "What are we talking about here?" And then they sourced the hack out of irrelevant statistics and things, but the really important statistics that apply to what the client does had no sources. And I was like, "Where's the source yeah. for all of this? Dump this other stuff. It doesn't. It's, who cares? You know? But this stuff is important." And we need to show that we are not making it up, you know. But for me, it was, there was no transitions. There were no flow, there was no Mm -hmm. flow, you know. And so I think, you know, we need to pay a lot of attention to format and structure, you know. And I have a degree in English, which a lot of marketers do not have, you know. So I, I pay attention to all that, but I'm just a diehard writer anyway. But we need to give our marketers more training, I think, in writing and formatted structure. And every time I take on a fractional VP role or whatever, that kind of thing, and I'm leading a team for a client, I give them all training. So,
0: You know, some of the best content we've ever pulled out of a business was where we would maybe attend a sales meeting and hear what they say their objections from their clients are when they're trying to do a sale take note of those objections, um, and then ask the salespeople, you know, what are the problems you're hearing out in the field? Um, and then, we'll write those questions down and ask them those questions on camera. And we won't tell them what the questions are. Because if, if we have five questions, and we say, hey, John, we want you to do some video content for us. Just show up, you know, just dress, wear a nice shirt tomorrow, show up, and do a video for us. And, it's not hard to find some sales guys who people who would do that um, if you want them but what you don't do is we would never and we learned the hard way we learned not to give them the questions that we were going to ask them
1: oh yeah because then they're gonna even get though a we got the answer from,
0: from them right because they rehearsed it they'll get a canned answer they'll start throwing back in their jargon they'll read a brochure out of their head they'll read a sales pitch you know we won't tell them we'll just ask them you know and because Because it's recorded, we could always edit it back into that structure you mentioned to get it back so it's cohesive and flows. But we may have a 30-minute conversation. And out of that, you either get 30 minutes of almost a white paper. You know, you get good information. Or you get four or five short videos that answer a specific question that you can put on our website on the same page in its natural language. And you can even give it to a writer and say, hey here's the natural language a salesperson uses. Now you can sound like you're the expert because you use their words, but yet it's still conversational. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up developing a formula where we'd, we'd have like um we call it a video day. We just go in and talk to salespeople. And we would get so much great natural language content from that.
1: Yeah, because um, evolved- that,
0: that evolved into podcast.
1: Yeah, well, because they're um, not rehearsed. It's just coming off the cuff. Yeah. And so it also shows you how well they know what they're talking about, right? If they can do it. Also. Yes. But the other thing I did um, for a client who needed some fast content was I had them go get a transcript from a webinar that was really well done by one of their executives. Mm. And I added the transcript down because you've got to when you turn it into text content versus video content, you've got to change up some of the ums and ahs and the structure of spoken yep. word, right? But it was an easy way to create a paper. I mean, in a couple of hours, it was just really fast. And it was something that the exec would put their byline on because they said it, you know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. You know, we even interviewed engineers because they don't talk sales speak, but they know their stuff. And imagine if you're looking at buying an enterprise software. I heard someone say, first talk to the salespeople. But before you buy, talk to the engineer to see if they actually can do that. (laughs) <laughs> you well, yeah. know, the salesperson will sell you anything, but the engineer will be more honest about, well, we really don't do that or we do do that. And maybe, maybe the, you know, the C-suite may say, don't use that text. Don't use what he said because we, we don't want anybody to know we don't do that. But in terms of getting that content from the engineer, either we got something that was um, extremely truthful, and proved the knowledge for that company, that they really knew their stuff, or we got some deep in the funnel information that talked to the engineer who was a part of the sales cycle who could have stopped the sale because you don't really necessarily see the engineer, right? You see the C-suite and the person who called you for the, you know, initial introduction. But what you don't see is during that sales process, they pass it to the people who really have to use this stuff and they go, you know what? It doesn't integrate with this. doesn't integrate with that. I don't like their code. Don't buy it. But if you have content from people like them, in their language, it improves your sales cycle.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely agree. And on top of that, it's so much better to ask them to talk about what they do than ask them to write about what they do. Oh, my God. You know, oh, one of my clients yes. is a quantum computing company. And when we ask engineers because we need technical content, you should see what they give us. It's just like, I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could you just talk to me about it? You know, and and so because yeah. it's like, man, you need a PhD to get through that. (laughs) I mean, it's like, so granted that most of our... uh,
0: Plus, when you're interviewing somebody and they're talking to you at that level, they can see your face look confused Mm -hmm. and they can simplify it and rephrase it.
1: Right, exactly. And so, but what a great way to engage really technical subject matter experts because they're really good at explaining stuff. But, man, you ask them to write about it and all of a sudden they're back in college writing their thesis or they're writing something for the (laughs) Journal of Engineering, you know, or whatever. And uh, it's just, you know, a nightmare. Um, But that's a great tactic for getting technical SMEs involved. And you get good content.
0: Well, you get great content. And to to kind of wrap up, I I love the content parks. I know you do a lot of strategy with, with companies and I know content's a part of that. Are there any types of content that you think companies should do more of or any challenges they're having in doing more than just written content?
1: Well, somehow along the line of, when I can't even remember when it started, but I might. um, When everybody started saying that humans have the attention of goldfish, you know, like eight seconds. (laughs) And I'm kind of like, if your content was good, they would pay more than eight seconds of their attention to read it. But, you know, everybody got into this thing where it's shorter formats and shorter this and shorter that. But you know what um, research is showing that it's the longer pieces, the guides, the white papers, the webinars. Those are the ones that um, marketing teams have trouble producing because they take more, right? And they're more in depth. Mm-hmm. They take more insight. They take more expertise to produce, um, whether from a writing perspective or whatever. But I think, and Even though buyers are saying, give me short snips, you can repurpose longer content, you know, all you want to give them those shorter snips. At some point, having it all together is going to be really beneficial. But I think, um, in fact, Netline, I think it was Netline, came out with their study. The top um, piece of content that was downloaded was an e-guide. And you would think that people downloading e-guides would be in buy mode right or buying in a, in the short term nope they um, what they found was really that longer form content the e-guides and the white papers and whatever they were a year out and so they're just doing their research and trying to ingest it all so if you're trying to build attention and engagement start looking at those longer pieces Instead, a lot of people think well, we need, you know, the, our blog, we'll engage them and then we'll give them some infographics and, you know, some short videos and whatever. And we'll build in as they go through a cycle, then um, maybe a webinar or a paper. They really want the papers earlier. I think we need to focus more on doing some in-depth pieces rather than short pieces where you don't, you can't dive all the way in. But the other thing that I think is lacking is connecting the dots. How many pieces of standalone content do you find on your client's website? Where you go out, you read it, and then there's like, if you want to go to what's next, how do you do that? You go search through yeah. all their videos or on their blog or on their, you know, why don't we tell people what's next? We need to connect the dots. In mm-hmm. fact, Uberflip just did a, um, a little small report. One of the things that buyers wanted was, give me what's next. So I don't have to go look for it. I don't know what to look for. And so we need to, if you're going to do shorter pieces, make sure they're connected. You know, I think companies or software like PathFactory does a great job of that by, you know, creating hubs where you can, you know, stack the content and connect it. So you connect the dots for people. But I think that's one of the shortfalls is that we'll give them one piece of content and then there's nothing else there. So it's kind of what I call a drive-by view. Okay, thanks for sharing. Moving on. Yeah. You know, and how do they make their way back to
0: you? You said a key thing there hubs, because I was talking with uh, John Miller from uh, Demand.
1: Is it Band base. Demand
0: Gen? Demand
1: Base. Demand yeah. base
0: yes. <laughs> and they have an amazing content hub. And it's, I use it as an example often because however you choose to consume content, they're going to have some content in that format for mm-hmm. you to choose. If you prefer to listen, it's there. If you prefer to watch videos, it's there. If you prefer to read, it's there. And I think any company who wants to reach a broader audience, that's part of the broader. It isn't necessarily different people, but it's different ways people consume content. Um, some prefer to read, some prefer to watch, some prefer to listen. And if someone prefers to listen, then your white paper will not get to them necessarily. Yeah. Um, they prefer to watch then the podcast might not get to them. So I think it's, I'm a firm believer in diversifying the types of content that a company needs to create. And like you said, have a hub. So they go there, they don't just find the one piece that they don't care to consume and leave. They can find their preferred type of content.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. It's just like when I click to go to a podcast page, I don't have time to listen to the podcast. Give me the transcript so I can skim it, get to the parts that I want to know about and move on with my day because I don't have time for that, right? So I'm a reader, you Mm -hmm. know, just by virtue of probably Mm -hmm. being a writer. But um, I prefer written. (laughs) But every time I go to a podcast link and there's no transcript, I'm like, okay, see ya. Would have been nice, but nope, I don't have time for that.
0: That's good to hear because my clients often ask us, you know, why we suggest they add a transcript. And so I'll tell them that because artists said so.
1: There you go. No, it's, it's about if, if you want to watch, watch. If you want to read, read. So by the same token, you can have a webinar for people that want to watch and turn that into a report or long form content for people who want to read. You know, it's a way to mm-hmm. I've always thought one of the best things you can do is repurpose your content because yeah. some people like audio, some like video, some, you know. It's all different. And so some are more visual. That's what we do. You know, and
0: so. Even today I was doing what you said. I went through the transcript to find a certain thing. But then I was like, you know what? I do want to hear this. So I bookmarked it. I saved it. So that when I go for my walk today, I can actually listen to the whole thing. So while I'm walking, I'll consume the whole podcast um, without reading it. Because I prefer to listen. But at the same time, I would have read it right then. But the time wasn't there. I know I have to allot some time for exercise. I'll listen then.
1: Yeah, I agree. And and the other thing, too, is leave the timestamps on the transcript. Because that way, if I want to hear the discussion around a certain piece, I can just get to that point in the video so I can hear that part of the conversation. I have a client who kept taking them all off. because She thought, well, this is going on the webpage. Nobody's <laughs> going to go back and listen to the, you know, the, the webinar. And I was like, or the podcast. And, and I was like, yeah, they are. It, or they might. You know, depending, they just want to find instead of the 20 minutes, give me that three minute section that's what stuff I want, you know, and so she made me take them off and I was just like. <laughs>
0: hey, you can only consult, but so much, right? They don't have to take it.
1: You no, know, <laughs> you, you become very, um, you learn to give up your personal attachment to stuff when you're a consultant, you know, you can put it yeah. out there, but then it's up to them whether they take it or not. So yeah.
0: Definitely. Well, Artith, I am tremendously grateful for your time and insights today. Um, Would you like to share any final words about your most recent content or how we can reach you?
1: Oh, sure. You can find me on LinkedIn at Ardith Albee, which is where I am most of the time. I'm on Twitter at Ardith421. And my website is marketinginteractions.com. And um, thanks for having me. This has been a great conversation. We could go on all day, I think.
0: We could, we could. So I look forward to seeing you probably in person at some point. Uh, And maybe we'll just talk again here as well. But yeah, we could, as I said earlier on, having somebody to talk B2B geek stuff, we could do it all day long. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks again. And to our our listeners, if you're listening to the podcast and want to see Artith and I, a video of the podcast and others will be available in the podcast section of contentmonster.com. Thanks again, Artith.
1: Thank you for listening
0: to the Business of Marketing podcast. A show brought to you by ContentMonster.com, the producer of B2B digital marketing content. Show notes can be found on ContentMonster.com as well as ALEEJUDGE.com. To
1: continue the conversation, be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast platform.